Yo, 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 Thought Warriors. What is up? Our learning is on is I, Van Lathan Jr. And it's me, Rachel and Lindsay. We hung out yesterday. We did. The Super, Super Bowl. Bowl. Yeah. We we, we nice we, we, simple we, party. Like a little Super Bowl situation. Yeah, went over there. Super Bowl. We'll talk about the Super Bowl a little bit later. But uh I was over there and I want to say one thing. I want to say free copper. Okay, Copper was fine. He did not have the muzzle on. We didn't do that. He was out here with every with all the other dogs. What are you talking about? We're going to talk about the Super Bowl and all the things that happened around it later. Um, but when I say free Copper, it's like, this is what I want to see for Copper. Okay, tell me. I walk in, Copper barks at me. I know he's going to bark because it's his house. You know what I mean? It's his house, okay. man. It's his house. You guys are like, no, Copper, Copper, no, no, Copper, no. And I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, it's like, you know, Van, of course he knows me. He knows me by scent. He knew me before I even hit the door. What I want is the next time I come over, just I want no, I want nothing said towards Copper. Like, it's not on no. my account. Not on my account. If you guys want to raise your kid, raise your kid however you want. But if Copper nips me, if Copper barks at me, that's Copper's crib. I keep telling y'all, don't weigh him down with all these expectations because I'm there. Don't do it on my account. I've Let seen Copper be him. Copper. I've seen me open the door and him literally charge at people. You have to let me say, hold on, hold him, and then let me say, okay, acknowledge him, and then you touch him. That prevents a charge or a bite. So this is my I know thing. my child. This is my thing. Let him get it off. You yeah. come into his house. Copper's been through so much. You know what I mean? <laughs> you like, what are you like, talking about? Like, you've, you, you, like he was a street dog. He was. You think, you think <laughs> that he wants somebody coming in off the streets trying to take what he got? And by the way, no one plays with Bozeman better than Copper. Bozeman cannot control himself. It's just not going to happen. Bozeman's up, like, knocking shit over. Brian's, like, just looking around, like, what's going on? Bozeman's knocking shit over everywhere. And Copper's just like, well, let me chill. This big, crazy mm-hmm. nigga. You know, he looks at Bozeman like a child. It's like, sit down, son. They play well, well together as cousins. They do. They play well together. They do. Browning, on the other hand, got at Bozeman. He scared Bozeman. Yeah, Bozeman, Bozeman's not Bozeman's not here for the for the for the conflict. It's a burden. <laughs> I mean, Bozeman's not here for the conflict. Bozeman's here to like have a good time, you know. Yeah, Brownie wouldn't have it. Yeah, He's Brownie a monster. Brownie is Brownie's brave. You know, Brownie's brave. Y'all, there was a there was a moment during the watch party where I caught Van just staring at Brownie. He got lost in Brownie. I I watched you for a good. 45 seconds, you were just staring at Brownie. And then you go, Brownie's really cute. Yeah, Brownie's a cute dog. Brownie's a cute dog. I looked at Brownie. Brownie's a little cute dog. Brownie's got a little personality. Brownie's a cute pup. I like dogs. Okay. I, I love dogs. I love Brownie. Um, so yesterday was your first day back in L.A. because you went to the Super Bowl situation. How was it? 
It was great. I had so much fun. My voice is not even that bad. You know, yeah. you know how my voice can get. Mm-hmm. But it was a good weekend. Hit the dinners, hit the parties, did a little networking, did one thing work-wise. I was in and out. A lot of people say, why don't you stay for the Super Bowl? I think that's kind of the deal with me and Brian, because this is a tradition for me to go, because I met Katie at Super Bowl, so we always hang out together. I go out, have a good time. But the deal is, I come back and I watch the Super Bowl every year with Brian. I don't stay, Mm -hmm. because Brian would be, feel a certain way if he didn't get to go to the Super Bowl. And I get that. He don't want to do all the other stuff. So I come home and we watch it together every year. So... No matter, because see, this year it's easy because the Super Bowl was in Arizona. It's like yes. an hour flight. But like, let's say the Super Bowl would have been in Miami. So then you would have gone to all of this stuff and then flown out like. I actually did do that. So we lived in Miami when the Super Bowl was in Miami. But Brian came to most of the stuff with me. We went together to all the parties. And um, the day of the Super Bowl, I flew back. I actually left Brian that time because I had to work or something. I was still freelancing in LA and there was something I had to do in LA. So I left and I still caught the Super Bowl. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Maybe I made it at halftime. Whatever it was, I saw it. I saw Shakira and J-Lo. I think I I only missed the first quarter. Shakira, Shakira. I I like different songs. You know what I like? I like the Lady Gaga era. You know? So her era is over? Yeah, like the way I'm talking about. I'm talking about Alejandro, Poker Face. Uh, you know what I mean? Everybody name their favorite Lady Gaga song. What's your favorite Lady Gaga song? I really like You and I. I don't know that song. Okay. I don't know it. Um, The Telephone Song? She does That's with Beyonce? Song. That's a good, she has telephone and then she has, I think Beyonce has like video phone. It's two different phones. And like, I think, I like Alejandro. I just love that song. Really? Donnie, yeah, I don't know why. Donnie, what's your favorite Lady Gaga song? Lady, Ga- Lady Gaga's era was epic. Yeah, I uh, agree. Mine is Poker Face, but Poker it's Face a specific one. The one where she's, um, I like the regular one, but I like one where she's playing on the piano. And uh, it's like an MTV Clip yeah, version. like she plays it staccato. Mm-hmm, I, know, I think mm-hmm. I know what you're talking about at the beginning. Yeah, Exactly. Ashley, what about yours? I like Mary the Night. Like she had- Thank God somebody chose a different song. I mean, they're over <laughs> here naming her top song. three. I was like, please, somebody pick a different song. Yeah, it was like <laughs> a big like music video on MTV, like during like the MTV Video Awards a long time ago. And it was like 12 minutes long and it was like a big thing. It was great. Yeah. She's dope. I remember when they took when they took Poker Face and they made it into that song with Kanye. You know that song with, with uh, Kanye uh, Common? Oh, uh, uh, with Kid <laughs> Cudi? Yeah. My, my, my Poker Face. I, I'd never heard of taking a song Born that new and chopping it. <laughs> Think about that. Born in I really like that song. How old is that? Old enough. Like now, born in 88, you old. Like we, it's, it's a lot of time has <laughs> passed. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, anyway. I love um, that song. Donnie, did you watch the Super Bowl yesterday? I did. I did. It was uh, entertaining yeah, until the end. You didn't like it at the end. You don't like when the refs... Fizzled out, yeah. The refs make accurate calls. You don't enjoy that. Wait, everybody, everybody, 
Who thinks the call was fair? So no, it's an accurate call. There's no, no doubt about it. No, not holding. His hand was just there. Okay, see, Donnie okay. says hold. So can Donnie I be honest says, with you guys? Well, you know, the player said, the player yeah. admitted, so Donnie, that he held him. Off. He the 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 guy said that he helped. He said I grabbed him. I think they're going. He said he said it. It's a but the question call. becomes: Do you do they normally call that? Because sometimes they let them go. I guess that's dependent on the ref. If some refs let it, it go. Some refs don't. That's fine. All that matters to me is that it's the rule infraction. <sighs> because I, I tell I tell you one thing is that if they don't call it, and then it's like, oh, he was grabbing his jersey. Then after the game, he said, I grabbed his jersey. Is it a shitty way for the game to end? Sure. It is. Unless the Chiefs won. If they didn't call it and the Chiefs still won, nobody nobody would talk about it. I'm going to get to the Super Bowl in a second. I have to say something real. Number one, we have... What, 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 I'm saying, we, uh, we, uh, we have Peniel Joseph coming up. We give you guys 40 minutes of Peniel Joseph. And we talk about everything. We talk about women's place and civil rights. We talk about DEI in Texas and them trying to do away with it. We give you a Black History Month check-in with one of the smartest men in all of America, Peniel Joseph. Yes, good conversation. Before we get to anything, we have to talk about something. We lost an absolute legend, Trigoy the Dove, one of the founding members of De La Soul. He died Sunday at 54. The cause of death has not been revealed, uh, but he had been open about his diagnosis of congestive heart failure. Um, okay. For a lot of you younger kids, you might not understand the importance of De La Soul. But there was this brilliant, amazing, beautiful time. And maybe it still exists and I'm too out of the loop to know. When rap was this fabric interwoven with all of these different threads where there were gangsters from the West, where they were uh, slick-talking niggas from the South, where they were purists from the East. Um, but there were also, there's also this brilliant, amazing, jazzy, Afrocentric, offbeat, off kilter um, group of guys called the Native Tongue Family. Native Tongue Family, Tribe Called Quest, Jungle Brothers, um, De La Soul, all of them making some of the most introspective, brave, beautiful, poetic, and enduring hip hop music ever. And that's what De La Soul represents. De La Soul represents just uh, a purity and a sincerity of artistic expression that you rarely see in any sort of uh, musical genre. Um, and they did it, they became legends for it. And this is the important reason why we have to make sure that we treat our pioneers and our legends and our building blocks, our foundation in a certain way. For those of you who don't know, De La Soul's music for a long time due to contract disputes and other sort of uh, um, red tape musical issues was not available on streaming services. It is now about to become available. So there's going to be an entire generation of people who are going to be 
uh, reacquainted and for the first time acquainted with the brilliance of De La Soul. And this brother, who was only 54 years old, didn't get a chance to see that. Now, he got a chance to see all kinds of other things. But the people that know, that care, they were celebrated the way that they were supposed to. But when we're talking about the people that made a way, that plowed a way for hip-hop to be what it is right now, the reason why it's important to care about them is because you want brothers like this to be able to smell those flowers. And all of the time that is wasted in these seemingly intractable disputes where they're fighting for their artistic lives and the right to monetize the genius that they put out there, it's wasted time. And we don't know how long they're going to be with us. We just have no clue how long they're going to be with us. So it was doubly gutting to me that this happened just before there was going to be a resurgence and a renaissance of De La Soul. I grew up on it. And I grew up on the first incarnation of D-Nice when he was a rapper. I grew up on BDP. I grew up on guys like Kwame, Redhead Kingpin, you know what I mean, Chubb Rock, all of these other guys that you can consider to be the dudes in hip-hop that were, you know, leaders of the new school, all of those guys. Like, I grew up on all of this type of rock. Obviously, the Tribe Called Quest, all of these guys, right? Those guys are important, man. They matter. But like really, really integral to everything that was going on. They changed it up. They flowed different. They dressed different. For a kid like myself who wasn't slanging no keys or getting no money off the street, it had no holes on the stroll. It mattered. It was important to me. It was fucking important to me. So I hope that everyone uh, understands the genius of De La Soul. My heart goes out to the surviving group members. My heart goes out to everybody in hip-hop that's been affected by this. But just like Dilla, you know what I mean? Just like countless others, this one was one that really hurt. Mm. It did really, it really, really hurt. Yeah, I mean, I'm not really going to add too much to that because what you just said is beautiful and you're obviously way more acquainted with De La Soul's music than I am. I did just interview Paz, though. And yeah. he was at, he performed at the, um, at the, uh, what was it, the Grammys. He performed at the Grammys in the hip-hop, in the hip-hop celebration. So if you haven't already, that's something that, that put them back out, too, because he was out there representing for De La Soul. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm not as familiar. So what you said was beautiful. And that it, it's, I'll say this, for people who consume hip-hop, I think what highlights even more of what you just said is that you look at it, and I'm throwing myself in this, you look at it for what it is right now and not necessarily the originators of it. You know, I'm familiar with names, I'm familiar with certain songs, but not necessarily the history, not necessarily the struggle of the music and the artistry of it. So I think that what you said is so encouraging for people who do consume it to understand it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're right. Um, all right, we're going to take a break. On the side of this, we're going to come back, talk a little bit about the Super Bowl. This episode is brought to you by Shea Moisture. We finally got some deodorants designed specifically for people with rich melanin skin from Shea Moisture. And they're amazing. Made with Shea butter and black dermatologist approved 
These deodorants give you and your skin the care that it needs. Now, here's the thing, Rachel. Okay. The deodorants came to the house. Yes, me too. You got yours. I got them. Kalika picked one up mm-hmm. specifically. And I was like, oh, why are you picking that one up? And she said, because it says it's even underarm tone. Mm-hmm. And she goes like, sometimes when you use the other deodorants, they leave like your underarms untoned or something like that. And she was so excited to have it. She went back and she started using it right there, which made me wonder if she had put deodorant on for the day. <laughs> maybe she just reapplied. Maybe she, but, but like, so that's a, it's a huge deal. And I've been using it too. It's very great. It's good. It smells good. Oh, yeah. Thing. No, no, no. It is good. And it's last long. Like mm. I'm a sweater. Mm-hmm. So I need something strong. Mm. And I need, in addition to, I like that it evens out the underarm. I like the moisture and all of that, but it's the, I need it to last long. And this lasts for, it's a 48 hour sweat and odor protection, which is key. Wow. Uh, get the protection your skin deserves. Tap the banner to learn more or visit SheaMoisture.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. Look at you. You're smart. You're stylish. You've just got it going on. And your ride should be no different. The new 2024 Hyundai Sonata Hybrid is the sedan that meets all your needs. With head-turning details like a sleek front-end plus stylish interior and an available 12.3-inch digital instrument cluster and seamless tech integration. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the 2024 Hyundai Sonata Hybrid. Okay, Rachel, your thoughts on the Super Bowl? I thought it was a great Super Bowl. All people like myself who don't have an allegiance to either team just wanted to see a good game and a good halftime performance, which we'll talk about later. Mm -hmm. That's all I wanted. This was especially the first half. It was an exciting game. There was the the offense was killing it. It was a back and forth, back and forth. Um, I was personally rooting for Jalen Hurts, so it was really great to see him do his thing. So I, you said what? He fumbled. Cost him the game. It was really great to see him do his thing. His fumble did not cost him the game. The missing the call. I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, I mean, Jalen Hurts, Jalen Hurts played a fantastic game. Jay, exactly. A, a, an amazing and he set a, game. And he a set a record. game. But okay. Stop, so stop being negative. You asking fumbled. me my thoughts. I, I, I know. I You didn't hear me say, no, it was the refs for call. I'm joking. Yeah. Um, anyways, I enjoyed this game, enjoyed watching it. Um, it was everything that I wanted it to be. And it was great to see two black quarterbacks thrive on football's biggest stage. I enjoyed it. I was entertained. It's what I wanted to see, even though it's not the, necessarily the outcome that I wanted at the end of the day. What did you think? I thought a couple of things. I thought, number one, uh, I could help but feel a little bit like an old Uncle Tom you know, watching the game. Oh, yeah, Colin Kaepernick Man, and Eric Reed. You what? You watch football? Not really. I'll be honest with you. I don't really watch. Look, I watch too much of it. I shouldn't be watching as much of it. I just want everybody to know we're all talking about the football. We're all complicit in one of the greatest misjustices <laughs> in American sports history. It's just a fact. It's okay, just a, don't it's don't a, go down a Colin Kaepernick hole. I'm not gonna go. I mean, it's not, it's not Colin Kaepernick Hole. It's a Colin Kaepernick shooting star as a comment. I just want everybody to know this. This is what I want everybody to know. Everybody had a great time. We poured hundreds of millions of dollars of commerce. I did it as well. We all did it. We all had a great time. There's a cost. That's all I want people to know. 
there's a cost. And for black people, especially, you got to remember there's a cost. That's all. Okay. So I have to say that. I have to say that. So are we to watching it together next year? <laughs> next year? <laughs> so, so I'm going to be honest with you. I'm working, I'm working my ass off right now to try to change the fate of Colin Kaepernick and doing all, everything that I can do. At some point, I'm going to have to punt on the NFL. It's going to be hard. But at some point, I'm going to have to punt on the NFL. Between that means that, you can't play the John game Watson, either. What game? Madden? Yeah, you can't play the game either. I can't play any Madden. No. That's football. I don't know. Man. That oh, contributes. They, they, oh, can I tell you something, though? Aha, just in time. You know what they have coming back out? NCAA football game. They have that coming out. And I love that just as much. Well, right. I can I, I, I can make the turn to, but I'm gonna be real with you, man. It's gonna be hard to give up on some Madden, but we gonna we, we'll see. Because I use Madden to cope with life, <laughs> but, we, 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 we'll, but we'll we'll find see. a new sport. Don't talk to me like this, Rachel. I'm just trying to hold you. I'm just trying to hold you to your word. I'm, and look, and I'm trying to, and I need to be. They got Deshaun Watson in the league. They got yeah, no, Deshaun Watson in the league. Sixty women nutted on them all. However. Colin Kaepernick and Eric Reed, just for standing up for black people, can't be in the league. Deshaun Watson, legit crazy. I'm sorry, I don't give a fuck what y'all say. The niggas nuts. I hope. I hope it, that he no, gets it's to- wild. It's wild that he got to come back this season. That it, it, right. that's that's wild to me. Thirty-eight, thirty-five. Uh, you know, Donnie put the game box score down here. I don't know why we would. We're not going to go. <laughs> he did. Like, I put a link to it just in case Donnie, you Donnie, wanted to. Thank you for being thorough, Donnie. Thank you. Let's yep. get to what people were talking about. Rihanna's halftime performance is what we were talking about. Some people were mad at Riri because Riri was a staunch supporter of the movement back when it was very fashionable to be a staunch supporter. Things have changed, and now Riri is doing the halftime show. Whatever, Rihanna can do no wrong. I love her. However, we should all be concerned. We should just know. It should be, it should be top of mind. Anyway, um, what did you think about the halftime performance, Rachel? Thought it was great. Okay. Okay. I thought it, I really thought it was great. I was excited to see Rihanna on stage. Yeah. She could have stood there with the microphone, not moved, moved her head, and I would have been excited just to see her in all her glory on at the halftime show. Being Rihanna. That's it. Um, so for me, you know, we watched it in a room full of people, full of people. It was me, Van, Cleek, and Brian, and, and the dogs. And I would say about 10 seconds in, we all kind of started to look at each other. Like, who wants to be the first one to say it? Mm. Who wants to be the first one to ask the question? We immediately started asking ourselves, is Rihanna pregnant? Y'all started asking. I didn't ask. I... I, what was the first thing I said? I said, I do not believe that it is fair to ever speculate that. Because you were looking on yeah. Twitter and you were like, Twitter is going I, off. No, no, and I'm no. like, I, was I looking pray at to God she Twitter is. what people were saying. Because yeah, people no, were about the halftime show. I will never forget Joe Knox, who was my cousin's dad, my grandmother's sister's husband, one day saw my mom in the the the, the grocery store and asked my mother if she was with child when my mother was not pregnant. 
And my mom was pissed and hurt. I never yeah. speculate on whether or not a lady's pregnant or not. You know what well, I mean? More people need to follow suit. I was not. So it 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 was like, y'all, she could, she could not be. So I just did it. I just couldn't believe how everybody was talking about it without knowing. And because it's not like we've seen Rihanna that much in the public eye. We're seeing her a lot this week because we knew she was performing. She's been doing press for it. But she's also been very covered up. If you look, she's been very covered up. Anyways, I was shocked. And I said, I pray she's pregnant because I cannot imagine. And and Rihanna doesn't seem to be bothered by anything. But I would have hated for people to be speculating in that way. And she wasn't. Uh But she is. And it's been confirmed. And that's beautiful. And I think that's great. And I think that adds to how historic or that it was historic. It's the first time Uh that any halftime performer, performer has performed while they were carrying a child, while they were pregnant. I think that made it even better. It was beautiful that that was her, that she gave it to us in a very subtle way. She wasn't out loud with it. You know, she didn't drop a microphone at the end of her performance and then reveal. Wow. (laughs) I'm kidding. I actually liked, loved when she did that. I'm kidding. I'm just messing with y'all because y'all get so mad at me. Y'all get so mad at me. I'm kidding. I actually loved when Beyonce did that with Love on Top. I love that performance. No. I'm putting it on the ground. Every time you don't clip me. Don't clip me out though when I say I'm kidding. Don't clip me out. Anyways, I love that she did it in a subtle way. And it was genius to me because it had everybody talking. The game had started and we were still trying to figure out if Rihanna was with child. It was a genius moment. She had a vibe. I think a lot of people wanted her to be over the top. Rihanna is a vibe. There is an energy about Rihanna. And she was giving us all of that in the performance. I loved it. Um, The performance itself to me went from being a performance that was sort of unremarkable to one that was insanely remarkable. And that's just the way this goes. I keep telling people this. It's like people go, well, it was whatever, whatever. The performance was whatever, whatever. But once you know the context behind it, it becomes one of the most amazing performances ever, right? Because think about it. Right now, if I told you uh, Giannis had a game where he went out and he was 7 of 20 seven from the field, right? And he had, I don't know, 22 points, you know, just and made a bunch of free throws and, you know, whatever. And just like, Giannis had a bad game. But if I told you that he had like a torn labrum or something like that while he was doing all of that and gutted out a victory for his team, even though he shot poorly, made it to a bunch, the line a bunch of times, play defense, it changes the perspective of the performance. To me, for her to be up there, for her to be way up high like that, and to do all of this stuff while with child. Amazing. It's amazing. It was fantastic to see her. It shows the commitment that she has to her fans and to everything else that she got up and gave a, a, a performance. You know what I mean? While she was pregnant, it was Rihanna. So you still have fun watching her. At first, it seemed like, oh, she isn't really dancing that hard. She isn't really doing whatever. And you're wondering if she's been gone. But you realize after that she's pregnant and it changes the context of the performance in a really good way. and makes it one of the most meaningful Super Bowl performances of all time. It's not the best Super Bowl performance of all time. 
but it's one of the most remarkable and meaningful Super Bowl performances of all time because it's, it's the first time anybody ever performed up there with a baby in this stomach. God damn it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, Super Bowl commercial time. I have a soapbox. Go for it, because I, you were way more into it than I was. We were talking about this yesterday, right? I have a soapbox about Super Bowl commercials. The best commercial was the farmer's dog commercial with the dog, his master, pulling on the heartstrings. I actually asked Rachel and Kalika if I should get some farmer's dog stuff after. Rachel's like, don't get the farmer's dog. Okay, <laughs> Rachel said farmer's dog. I have an experience, and I have, I have other friends that have used it that have experience. It's fine. I don't know. I, it, look, anything that'll keep my little Wozily Wabbit uh, around longer, I'll do it. That Farmer's Dog commercial was great. The Tubi commercial was great. Yeah, it was good. When it took over your TV, Tubi commercial was great. Other than that, and the Bunny commercial was great. Where they, the other Tubi commercial where they threw everybody down the yeah. rabbit holes. Yeah, I, yeah. Other than that, most of the commercials sucked ass, and I'll tell you why. We went from this time back in my day where we had all kinds of amazing commercials. We had the Clydesdales. We had the Bud Bowl. We had Spuds McKenzie. We had the uh, Waza. We had all kinds of different commercials that people did. We had Doritos commercials, all of that stuff, right? Basically, what we have now with the Super Bowl commercials is 150 different celebrities Hawking shit or doing shit from movies from the 80s and the 90s. It's to me whack as fuck and indicative of where society is the lowest sort of effort, right? Rather than give you a new movie that you can go see, they give you some kind of IP regurgitation of something that came out 15, 20, 30 years ago. Rather than actually give you like a commercial that's about something that's kind of cool, that sparks like a cultural phenomenon, fuck it. Let's give Adam Driver a hundred, like $10 million and just let him hawk something. Let's put Will Ferrell in something. Let's put Kevin Hart in something. It's just lazy and whack and no creativity. We're in the era of mid. It's the era of mid. Everything is mid. You get all excited for all of this stuff, and at the end of the day, it's fucking mid. It's just okay. The game was going to be a great game. We're going to see Jalen Hurts with a chance to drive the field, to tie or go ahead in the game, depending on what happened. You know what happened? Something that happened, just make it mid. Just make it a little mid. I don't know. I, I wasn't feeling the Super Bowl commercials. Rachel, what about yourself? No, I mean, I was. we, we discussed it. I, too... Was like, if I see one more celebrity at this point, I surprisingly the celebrity commercial that I liked the most was the Dunkin' Donuts commercial. I thought that was cute with Ben Affleck and J Lo because especially because he's a super fan of Dunkin' Donuts, so I understood the attachment to it. But other than that, it was almost like like a Marvel movie. At this point. If you're what? not in a, if you're not in a Marvel, all celebrities want to be a Marvel movie. This is the new thing. Everybody's like, I want to be in a Marvel movie. Sure. One thing, it's like a, a bucket list thing on their career. 
because Marvel is the hottest thing and they have such a huge fan base and it's all, it's it's huge for you to get into that world. That's what I'm feeling like with Super Bowl commercials at this point. I mean, who are you if you don't get a Super Bowl commercial? That's what it felt like. And it's going to be worse next year. It's going to be worse. You know what? We talked about this, but after going through the whole game, it made me miss the crypto commercials where there was just silence oh, and there was a QR code. <laughs> there was a QR code. <laughs> crypto the whole, was a celebrity last year. And then the whole game. Is also like, oh, the whole game is like, oh, here's who's in the crowd. Here's here's Paul McCartney. Who gives a fuck? They do Paul that McCartney's, every time. I don't give a fuck. I'm sick of it. I'm, I'm, I'm... Here it is. Hypocrisy time. Hypocrite time. It's time for the ex-TMZ guy to say that this entire celebrity culture thing, which we'll be covering a little bit later on this podcast as well, this it, it's just, there's a limit, guys. There's a limit to where it starts to just get whacker and whacker. And to me, <laughs> just 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 watching the commercials, the commercials used to be dope. You know what I mean? They used to be super awesome. And now that's why the Farmer's Dog commercial was the best commercial. It was a real commercial about a real pup. You know what I mean? About a real pup. I actually old- like to see who's at the game. Why? Why do you care know. about who went to the game? It's just interesting to me. Like I that and I'm not even a big person who's into celebrity like that. You know, I'm not name dropping my friends every chance I get on this podcast. That's not me. The ding rule exists for you. But I like (laughs) I like to see who's there. I'm like, oh, that's so and so. And they brought their kid. Oh, they brought their wife. Oh, that was cute. I don't know. I just I like to see it. I'm always interested. Do you know what I really don't like about it? What I don't like about seeing all the famous people at the game is that I just think it just shows me that regular people can't go to the game. Yeah. It's like, because cause like you're watching the game, yeah. right? It's Paul McCartney, it's Elon Musk and Rupert Murdoch. Fucking Earl. Right? It's Elon Musk, Rupert Murdoch, all of these far people. JG's here and Wick Washington. Oh, everybody having a fun time. You know, and all of this stuff is going on. And I'm thinking, live in a place where like a regular person can't go to the Super Bowl. And I'm not sure if we should live. You know what? I would like a world where a regular person would be able to go to the Super Bowl and have fun at the Super Bowl. And it's a memory for some kids somewhere that will be able to go to the Super Bowl with their family. Maybe it would cost a lot of money, but at least it's something that's aspirationally affordable. But in the way that we're living now, the Super Bowl is it's a it's something for the NFL and it's only for famous and rich people. It's just I don't like that. It's, it's always been that way. That's not and true. You could- but you could apply. It, has it hasn't always. always it way. hasn't always been expensive to go to the Super Bowl. It's maybe been expensive, but it hasn't always been like a lot of these things are changing like this. Like I go back right now. I challenge everybody to do something right now. Go watch an NBA slam dunk contest on the fucking uh, on YouTube. Go watch an NBA slam dunk contest from 1995 or 1996, and then watch it now. Now. I will say the slam dunk contest audience is better, like for some reasons, because it's more black people in the slam dunk contest. And all sorry, we can exchange. But also, you just see more like families there. <laughs> like you just see more like people there. They're like, but now when you look at the game, you see all this stuff, it's like, oh shit, J. Cole about to come out and dunk. That's cool. 
don't know, man. You know what, I'm though? I guess for me, I never, I never even thought I would be Super Bowl adjacent. So as a consumer of football, I used, I think, I don't know if I ever desired to go. I mean, well, you know, Cowboys, I guess, back in the day. But I yeah. I thought it was cool. It was this big, bigger-than-life thing. And I never really looked at it as I'll be able to go. I just love to watch it because for me, it was like, wow, it's the Super Bowl. It's this fantasy. So I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm, like, sitting at home mad because as a civilian, I can't afford to go to the Super Bowl. It's just so cool to watch. It was just this bigger than life thing. Now that I'm an adult, it's not as big of a deal. Do you know what I mean when I say that? It's just, it's just I like, don't know. It, it, I feel like it, you it, could do that with so many big things. The NBA finals, Super Bowl, college me, national championship. But, like, to, but to, to, to me, it's like, it's just, it's a reminder of sort of, like you and I could easily go to the Super Bowl, right? Like it, it's, it's, it's. I don't the, know if I'm, that's expensive. Rachel, if if you don't want to go to the Super Bowl, I could have made a couple calls and we could have gone to the Super Bowl. No fucking problem. Okay, Donnie. like it, it's, it's fact. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I'm just. It's fact. I'm not saying it's not. Like it's it's facts. What I'm saying is that it's just to me, and maybe it's just the way that it happens. It's just becoming a, like a reminder of the gross difference and inequality. I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm doing it's, too much. It's I'm doing ev- too much. that's ev- you turn on the TV. It's everywhere. I get what you're saying. You're not wrong. Yeah. It's just it's everywhere. I'm doing too much. <clears throat> Vance, Vance, Vance doing too much. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I want to play this by Chris Berman real, real quick. I don't know if you saw this. Chris Berman had a message for everyone during NFL primetime. Uh, Donnie, run the audio. It's, it's very, it's one of the most important messages ever. He, he, he made an observation, and I think everyone should hear it. Also, of course, two African-American quarterbacks starting against each other in the Super Bowl for the first time. Fittingly, February 12th is Abe Lincoln's birthday. Here we go with the highlights. Okay. Um, Who was sitting at the table with him? uh, I believe it was Steve Young. Was Was it Booger? And Booger, I think Booger was there. Yeah. Okay. This is not like a big... It's not like he said two niggas are starting the Super Bowl or something like that. But this is the type of shit that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Nigga don't give a fuck about no Abe Lincoln. This is a deeper... It's like fittingly on Abe Lincoln's birthday. Let me tell you, for anyone that might be listening and wonders, why is that irking to Van? Because it... It gets on my fucking nerves because in some way it's saying that Abe Lincoln, a white guy, is the one that is responsible for the advancement. And that's exactly what it's saying. That's, guys, this is the problem. It's not, it's it's just like, you know, man, because I, I look, I don't want to like not act like the Emancipation Proclamation isn't important. I don't want to act like that's not a big deal. Right. But if you know your history and context to just say on Abe Lincoln's birthday, the nigga who freed the slaves. Look at these two blacks play football. It's odd. It's off putting. It's weird. And it's and it's like. It's, there's this kind of underlying subtext. It's like, yeah, you know, 
You walk around, you see a black guy do something. Hey, shout out Abe Lincoln. No, 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 not shout out Abe. Not shout out Abe. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm like, for real, Chris? And he's old. He probably thought he was being real as shit. Yo, man, Abe Lincoln's birthday, yeah. two black guys. He probably was doing just, y'all, white people, I promise, man. No, no. It's, it's gravy. Just relax. Y'all got to relax, man. But but this is why it's 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 like, it's it rubs me the wrong way. Like I laugh, but one, it's just such BS. It's as if not you. Yes, that is Abraham Lincoln's birthday, but you're saying it almost as if we should be thankful. You know, it's historic for this, and fittingly, it's this appropriately that it's it's his birthday because black people should forever be thankful to Abraham Lincoln, which is not historically accurate, which highlights a deeper issue about why. You know, they're trying to change education and not allow certain things to be taught in school. It's because Chris Berman is of the generation where he was taught and we were taught this in school, too, that Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves. And we praised him or we were supposed to praise him and look at him as some sort of deity for doing that to us as black people. When the reality is Lincoln didn't even believe that black people should have the same rights as white people. Okay, so like that's that's the kind of history we need to be talking about if you dive deeper into it. So that's why this irked me, because that's not actually how we should be perceiving Abraham Lincoln. Chris Berman is younger than I thought he was. Uh, He's he's 67. Okay, so how old did you think he was? (laughs) I thought Chris Berman was in the 70s for sure, man. (laughs) Okay, I thought thought Chris Berman was in the 70s for sure. So Chris Berman is younger than I thought he was. Okay. All right. So here, here, here's my thing with this. I understand that. The frustrating thing is that in all of the time that Chris Berman has been doing this thing and all the time Chris Berman has been on television, he's been a household name, that there's been no evolution of his thought. That's the scary thing. The scary part of it is not what you were taught. Okay. The scary part of it is what you haven't learned since. And so for me, Yes. Like, like someone who's kind of, you know, obsessed with like decoding things and probably it's a coping mechanism. It's not something, it's like I do it because I have an, an anxiety disorder. It's like, whatever. I always need something running through my brain. But just to think that we're, it's 2023 and we're still back to the shout out to Abe Lincoln situation. That's like a 1975, <laughs> 1970 at best, 1985 framework, you know? And it's no, not the worst. I was worst taught that. I was taught in school about it's not the, the glory of Abraham Lincoln. Worst thing in the world to say, but it's just so fucking odd in the times that we live in today. That's not odd. He's a 67-year-old white man. No, no, no. It it's, is, just, it's, not a, it's, it's not odd. I know what you mean. But I'm fittingly, saying it's, just a, it fit, it's fitting. To use a word from Chris Berman, it is very fitting for him. It's not shocking to fit to hear him say that. It just highlights the issues that we have in this country, and as you pointed out, that there's no desire to be better. Chris Berman's it's just funny. So both, but Chris Berman talking about black quarterbacks. Oh my God, Chrissy Berman. It's all great. All right, let's He's take a not- break. We're gonna. He did gonna it on purpose. <laughs> he wanted to say it. He wanted to say it so that he's like, enough of this black quarterback talk. That's literally, you cannot tell me anything different. 
He was like, I am sick of talking about how this game is about historic black quarterbacks. Y'all done brought Doug okay, Williams out here. <laughs> y'all done brought Doug Williams out so, here. Let me just let y'all know, just in case y'all forgot, Abe Lincoln. That is so exactly wait, what he said. Like, I ran between like all those lines. You feel like Chris Berman felt like niggas was getting too much credit and he wanted to throw it back to old honest Abe. Yes. That's what you're Fittingly. Come on, come on, fittingly is a strong word. And he ended it on that. He wanted to get that in. It was a mic drop moment for him. I'm sorry. <laughs> I keep going. This has bothered me. <laughs> All right, let's take a break. We're going to give you Dr. Neil Joseph on the other side of this. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. Look at you. You're smart. You're stylish. You've just got it going on. And your ride should be no different. The new 2024 Hyundai Sonata Hybrid is the sedan that meets all your needs. With head-turning details like a sleek front-end plus stylish interior and an available 12.3-inch digital instrument cluster and seamless tech integration. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the 2024 Hyundai Sonata Hybrid. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like... Can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. You guys, uh, we told you we'd bring them back. During Black History Month, Dr. Peniel Joseph, Peniel E. Joseph, of course, he's a scholar, teacher, a public voice on race issues, especially the history of the Black Power Movement. Joint professorship appointment at the LG, LBJ School of Public Affairs and the History Department at the University of Texas, Austin. Ooh. <laughs> Don't be a hater. Ooh. We told you guys to pick up the sword and the shield, the revolutionary lives of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. We told you guys to pick up the third reconstruction. You should also pick up Stokely. If you look back right here, Stokely, you'll see right there, waiting till the midnight hour, you'll see right there, the sword and the shield, you'll see right there. And other books that Dr. Joseph told me to read, the third reconstruction, you'll see all right here. All right. Are you at home, Ben, or is that your is that your home office, or is that your your um? Uh, I'm actually at your house. This is your bookshelf. <laughs> you know, if you turn around, well, I'm at home. <laughs> yeah, look, look at yeah. Dr. Joseph's bookshelf. So many books. Yeah, my, my, there's a lot. You had something to say when you came on about what's going on in Texas. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, Texas is under attack. You know, people talk about um, DeSantis in Florida, but the great state of Texas is under attack. Uh, Greg Abbott. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, not only are they trying to ban the teaching of Black history uh, in K-12 through education, but they're trying to ban the teaching of um, and just d- diversity, equity, inclusion uh, in all state um, agencies, right? And when we think about DEI, I actually um, am associate dean for DEI at the LBJ School. That's really the whole idea of uh, bringing equity um, to the curriculum, the, the culture, uh, the, the community, um, and the composition of state agencies, higher ed. It means bringing Black and Brown, um, queer, just folks who've been marginalized to the table. And of course, they're all qualified, right? We never bring people 
to the table. It's like what you all do. You're not trying to say, hey, somebody who can't do it, we're suddenly giving them access. We're saying people who are qualified for whatever it is they want to do, um, but who aren't just white, male, straight, uh, who've dominated everything um, since the birth of the country. So they're trying to ban that in Texas. They're trying to ban tenure. Um, they're introducing a bunch of new bills. So this is, you know, they're trying to turn Texas into Florida. Uh, and it's really um, dramatically bad. And the basis of this is basically, uh, you know, anti-Blackness. Um, you know, Soledad O'Brien just tweeted the idea when Marjorie Taylor Greene says she could use, she could have used uh, uh, no wokeness at the Super Bowl, that wokeness is just at now just a phrase for not just Black, but probably a racial slur as white supremacists say it, right? So when yeah. they say it was too woke, they're basically calling us the N-word. Yeah. That's where we're at. Mm-hmm. You know, so when people say the anti-woke bills or DeSantis has the woke stop woke act. And that's where we are. So this Black History Month, we have to understand like what our priorities are, especially the theme is resistance. But like in Texas, you know, Rachel, you know, Texas is a great state and there are people struggling for Black freedom and citizenship and dignity and for Hispanic folks and Asian folks and queer folks and poor white folks in the state, but there's a whole other history of Texas that's a really rugged, rough history. And that's the history that kept us out of UT. UT was founded yeah. in 1983 and it's founded as a segregated school. And the reason why that should be um, really important for us is that that's founded only 18 years after the end of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. So UT should not have been a racially segregated school. We had just fought a Civil War where over 700,000 people died. So UT would not be racially segregated, but it still was. So we have a hard history and this Black History Month that's still playing out here in Texas. Yeah, you mentioned Texas being a great state, but it seems that the other side of Texas is what's louder than anything else. You know, we talk about DeSantis and, and Abbott on this podcast quite a bit, and I swear they're in a competition of who can be more <laughs> outrageous, racist. You know, it, it's it's wild how these two are going head to head. And if Florida does it, you very well know that other red states, Texas being included, are going to do the same thing. Um, this state representative, Carl Tepper, who is a uh, who filed this bill. He said that DEI doesn't stand for diversity, equality, and inclusion, that it stands for division, inequity, and indoctrination. Um, Yeah. Oh, all I was going to say is, yes, please speak on that. And then also, based on how we've seen other things go through, you know, uh, Congress in Texas, see things get passed, see things move forward. How likely do you think that this is going to be another thing that they are successful on with their agenda? Well, because Texas has been gerrymandered, racially gerrymandered for decades and decades. Remember, Texas is the home of the all-white primary that was challenged in the Supreme Court, 1927, and it was an all-white Democratic Party. So we have to remember the parties flipped. The contemporary Republican Party is actually the old Democratic Party which is the Dixiecrat Party and the party of white supremacy. That's what a lot of people kind of don't understand that, but that's what happened starting in the late 60s. What was the gist of that flip? Tell them, Dr. Joseph. The the flip was done because of civil rights. Lyndon Johnson said after he passed the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, we've lost the South for a generation, but it was for more than just a generation. The, 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 The racist white South went and incorporated and took over the entire Republican Party. 
That's what they did. And it wasn't just MAGA. It is old Dixiecrats who, these are the people who, uh, uh, they killed uh, Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman in Mississippi in 1964. They murdered um, Emmett Till in 1955. Um, you know, when they were looking for Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman in Mississippi, they dragged several rivers for two months. And they came up with eight uh, torsos and heads and limbs of Black people who had been lynched and 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 placed in rivers in Mississippi. True story. This is 1964. They finally found the bodies of Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman, two white, one Black, um, uh, on August 4th, 1964, in Mississippi in an earthen dam. That's where they found them, right? And so, you know, this is this is the history that we should be talking about, but it's also... You know, we talk about resistance. We, you know, we should be angry. We should be angry. I saw, Van, your interview with Acho, and that's mm-hmm. one of the books, mm-hmm. the legendary interview. But we should be angry. And I think that, you know, even as, you know, some folks might not be, feel so connected to this history that they feel they're sort of above it and can be really cool about it. But this is our history and this is our people being attacked and being killed. And we should be angry. We should certainly... Um, uh, organize that, but we should be mad. We should be mad and we should be upset about this. So I understand and we should feel passionate that this is not the kind of world we want to live in. But we have to understand that what's going on now is exactly what was going on in the 1860s and 1870s and 1880s. For a second, forget the 1960s, forget King, forget all the stuff you see in the media. In the, ni- in the 1860s, 70s, and 80s, including right in Texas, I've got Merle Petrie has a great book on Black leadership, which is really just about Black Reconstruction in Texas, uh, who's Merle Petrie, a great historian at Texas Southern University, African-American woman, uh, uh, M-E-R-L-E, last name is P-I-T-R-E. These are the people who do the root work. She has a great history book about Texas Southern University, too. So when we talk about HBCUs and Texas Southern and why it's so important, right? Um, But you know, this is what was happening to us right after we got voting rights. This is what was happening to us right after we got birthright citizenship. We were being oppressed with these laws and this legislation that said Black citizenship and dignity was reverse discrimination, that it was reverse racism against white people. So Mm. this is an important time for us because everybody who thought to themselves, you grow up and you think to yourself, man, what would I have done in those times? You know, in those times, whether it's the Black Panthers or Martin Luther King Jr., Angela Davis, or Reconstruction, Frederick Douglass, Martin, uh, Abraham Lincoln, you're in it. You're in it right hmm. now. These are the times. So this is not this high. You know, you can't sit back and say, oh, these other people uh, did it for me and they, they, they achieved for me and now I've got it easy. You're in, um, you know, just a, an updated, evolved version. They didn't have Twitter. Um, or now Spoutable with Chris Boozy. They didn't have that. Um, shout out Chris. Yeah, shout out to Chris. They didn't yeah. have, um, you, know, um, you know, higher learning and podcasts, but the forces that we're facing and we're up against, they confronted the same forces of DeSantis and Dan Patrick and um, Donald Trump and, and all that we're facing, they confronted. So I want to ask you about something <clears throat> before I, I get to the... Uh, um, the sort of civil rights aspect of our talk. I want to ask you about not a specific case, but an overall 
idea. So there's a case going on in Colorado right now um, with Mallory family who relocated from Houston to Colorado. And uh, they are the victims of what they say are uh, is wholesale white terrorism and the neighbors and people in surrounding areas that don't want them to have their farm. Mm-hmm. They say that uh, the crops are being poisoned, the livestock is being killed, and they are being intimidated. Okay. Um, we talked about this with Hawk Newsom on Monday, uh, excuse me, on, on Friday, and it's, it's uh, happy to say that some money has been raised to help Hawk and the rest of the activists go down there to have some of this stuff. But they need, but we're going to need more stuff for them. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, I want to ask you a question. I talk about it a lot, of, a, a lot here, but I want maybe if you know to yeah. go a little deeper in the history of black land ownership in America and how that changed post 1910s, 1915s, 1920s. How did black people go from owning the most land that they've ever owned in acreage uh, in around 1905, 1906, 1907 to now owning literally the least amount of land that we've ever owned? to the point to maybe Paul Allen and a couple of other people, like the top four white landowners in the country own more land now than all of Black America combined. How does that happen from us having land to not having it? What, what, what went down? Yeah, you know, there's a great, the, the great book that was a National Book Award finalist, his name is George Floyd, actually does a great history of this through George Floyd's family. And the way in which the Floyds, both on his mother and father's side, um, they had some prosperity and they had some land ownership in North Carolina and other places. And that land was um, taken away from them. So it's a, it's a number of different ways, both um, I'll say legally and extra legally. And by legally, these are things that should not have been legal, but they were legal because it was against right. Right. The extra legal, I mean, is the violence, the terror. Uh, There's a great essay um, in the 1619 Project by Tremaine Lee. that. Oh, it's fantastic. And I actually helped um, edit that essay for for the New York Times. So so it's fantastic. Tremaine Lee, the legacy uh, um, uh, chapter and also the chapter dispossessed in in, um, dispossession in 1619 Project. So. Long story short, the way they did it was several things. So one was what they're facing in in the case you just talked about in terms of, you know, poisoning livestock, um, um, driving people out through terror, maybe um, burning people out, really just physically intimidating them. Another way of doing it was just simply not acknowledging Black ownership of the land. And this is what we have to understand. When it comes to land and property in the United States, whiteness protects you and your land because what it does is it it provides a kind of legitimacy and authority in terms of your neighbors. So your neighbors aren't going to really mess with you. Now, there are exceptions to this. The the range wars, the Montana, uh, Wyoming range wars of the 1860s and 1870s. And that pitted small white capitalists against huge white capitalists who were going to put in the railroad and they at times even murdered the smaller white capitalists. I, I just want people to know. So there are exceptions. But for the most part, as, as the country industrialized, you started to see much more legitimacy granted 
to this idea of ownership and land ownership and even the homestead, right? The Homestead Act and, and whiteness protected people. And it provided you a context to go into a local court and say, here's my land to get somebody who was a geographer who could really say, here's the land, here's where things are. Um, a surveyor, a surveyor who says, hey, your land van ends right here from the west to, to the east. And this is where it is. And we've been having that for, for you know, over a century and a half. Black people didn't have that luxury. So even if they had land that they had purchased, a lot of times locally, that purchase was not accepted. Or even if it was accepted in one historical era, in another, when Black people became more vulnerable, it was not accepted. So it became almost impossible to um, transfer generational wealth. And this is where we get to the heirs' property in the Black mm. community. Because, and, and there's, there's, there's been some great work done on heirs' property where you're not able to just say, hey, my son, my daughter, my family is going to get this property. And then legally, anybody who's related to you, this has happened to Prince. There's a hundred. Explain, explain them what heirs' property is real quick. Heir, heirs' property is the idea that if you, if you don't have a will, and this happened to Prince, Prince left no will. And there are 140 living relatives connected to Prince biologically who then put a claim in on his hundreds of millions of dollars estate, right? And so basically, if you don't leave a will, anybody who is your biological heir, this can include cousins, it includes aunts and uncles, certainly your children can make a claim on the estate and on the property, right? And that becomes really, really hard um, to deal with, because unless that group of people are are um, all in together and saying, here's how we're going to divvy this up, what what people did with heirs' property was they would make a they would they would buy up a share of somebody's claim, right? White white folks would buy up a share of somebody's claim and then make claim to the entire property, make a claim to the entire property. So that that was one of the ways, but it's been it's many multiple ways, including courthouses that won't accept wills that are that were drawn up by African American lawyers. I mean, this uh -huh. is crazy the way in which the land was taken away. Including, you know, the New Deal takes away a lot of black land, right? The Agricultural Adjustment Act, which is supposed to help um white and black farmers, doesn't give any money to black farmers and allows white farmers to buy out black farmers, right? And and both the New Deal and even before the New Deal uh, depressions that happened in the context of World War One and the Great Migration, what, what white farmers often did was turn Black owners of acres of land into sharecroppers and into, into debt peonage farmers for them, right? And so, so this is a combination of racial terror, of, of the law, of Black people at times leaving land that they owned because they didn't want to die for that land anymore, Right. Um, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates' Case for Reparations gets deeper uh, into this. A great book is Nell Irvin Painter's um, Exodusters, which mm -hmm. looks at the Black folks who Toni Morrison later writes about Nicodemus, Kansas, from the 1870s and the 1880s who migrated to get their own community. That's the, really the first great migration is a migration out West by African-Americans. And then we get the other migration starting um, really right around World War One, out to places like St. Louis and Akron, Ohio and Cincinnati 
and, and, and Los Angeles, Oakland. And really, truthfully, Los Angeles, Oakland, we went to them in big ways during the Second World War. And we went, we went to those places because, uh, and that's why you have a Calabama accent, right? Houston, a lot of people from Houston went to Los Angeles. Why? The war is so crazy and there's, an, a, there's a manpower shortage, human power shortage. 16 million people are away and Black folks, including people don't talk about this often, Black women and men, but women too. There's a Black Rosie the Riveter. Called her something else, <laughs> not really. <laughs> yeah. You know, okay. Um, um, who get jobs in the defense industry, right? So that's what happened. We we lost the land out of a combination of of, of physical violence and terror, but also legal chicanery um, and just just plain theft. You know, we got put. You know, you see that in the Tremaine Lee essay, and that updates into the 1940s. Black man very prosperous. He's got a gas station, a, a, a store, and he's murdered in broad daylight. He's murdered in broad daylight and never able to pass on that generational wealth to his family. Dr. Joseph, I recently just learned about my own family that we, on my dad's side, first off, my Lindsay, the name that I have, was changed after their land was taken from them in Louisiana. It's actually Lot. I learned this in the last couple of years that my wow. great-great-grandfather was run sent the family off to Texas to defend the land because the KKK was trying to steal it in Louisiana and they never saw him again. Mm -hmm. So I think if, uh, if, if you're, if we all trace back, we would probably have a similar story of how land was taken away and wasn't passed to us, passed on to us. Um, Piggybacking on what Van was talking about, about talking about the civil rights movement and you mentioned black women and I want to get into that. Um, I think that before I, after once I went to college, it changed. But while I was in high school, I don't know. I definitely wasn't taught in my school, but I don't know if I could have named more than five women who black women who were active in the civil rights movement. Yeah. It came on my own, um, taking certain classes in college, uh, expanding on that on that curiosity. And I think that most people would be able to relate to that. What I find interesting is in reading your book. And then also seeing other things is how Black women were treated in the civil rights movement. Yeah. Um, I was reading something that Barbara Reynolds had said. And if people aren't familiar with her, she's a journalist minister and she was her recordings were used in uh, Coretta Scott King's memoir. Mm -hmm. She said there were hundreds of unnamed women who participated in the movement. And she goes on to say, um, Dr. King was a chauvinist. And yeah. she says... That men like him, quote, could not assert their manhood in the general society because they would be killed if they stood up for anything. So they asserted their masculinity in other ways within their own community. Right, Dr. Joseph, how true is that? <laughs> yeah, no, that's real. That's real. I think it's really complicated. I want to break it down. But Martin Luther King is part of a patriarchal, sexist, we could say massage noir. Um, uh, tradition, both in the Black church and in the Black community. I also think it's very complicated in this sense that when we think about gender and we think about patriarchy in, in the Black and white community, people can do multiple things at the same time. They can have multiple identities. So you can have, um, and just to name some Black women from the civil rights era, because you said five, you know, there's everybody from Mary McLeod Bethune, of course, Ella Baker, Fran Fannie Lou Hamer, Angela Davis, but 
Fran Beal, Gwen Patton. Um, uh, 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 there, there's there's so many different Black women throughout the ages, and it's important um, sort of to remember them. Um, Ruby Doris Smith, uh, so many different Black women who are part of Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, part of the Congress of Racial Equality. Sonia Sanchez, um, you know, just it's just a plethora. Artists like Nikki Giovanni, uh, you know, you know, different poets, um, politicians like Shirley Chisholm, Barbara Jordan. So it's really we can. We, you know, and I would with Barbara Reynolds, I'd say that there's really thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of, and millions of black women who are part of it, you know, like like their male counterparts. So the sexism and patriarchy is complicated and it, it's it's there. It's absolutely there. And King is a patriarch. King is what we now call a womanizer, a philanderer. Um, at the same time, people like, I think, Coretta Scott King are not victims. They have agency, too, and they're trying to operate within a structure that allows all this stuff to happen, but they want their own dignity. I think Dr. King and Coretta Scott King have a deep, deep love affair, even within the context of, of, of that. It's not, it's not things that we would accept today, right? Unless people formally, some people say they have open relationships and actually do accept it, right? But it's, right. it's really complicated. So I want to say, yes, it's there. Um, it's it's definitely uh, prevalent, but also Black women within that, that, that social historical context are pushing back against that and they have their own agency. So I don't want to put them as victims, but I do think that King um, and Malcolm and Black men in that historical context you know, they, they, they are both fighting against racism externally, but they're also caught up in this patriarchal um, framework of what freedom means. I think Malcolm makes some progress. You know, he goes to Africa. He makes some progress by um, seeing African revolutionaries alongside Black women and men there. I think King, um, it's more of a work in progress because I don't, I don't know if King is ever able to, the way Malcolm with the organization of Afro-American unity, he has Lynn Shiflett and different black women, including his sister, Ella Mae Collins, who are his key advisors. And they're in that circle of trust. Right. And he's it, and women who are in the circle of trust and he doesn't have a romantic relationship with them. Right. You, see what I'm saying? you know, yeah. he's just trusting as advisors and as equals. I think over time he gets it. Um, I would never call Malcolm a feminist, but I'm saying he's getting it. He's evolving. He's assassinated at thirty nine. You know, so so who knows what he could have become. But I would say that that King is more um, caught up in in a chauvinism, a sexism, massage noir that is just integral to that that period. And that's why, look, no woman, no black woman speaks at the March on Washington. Right. 1963. We're about to celebrate the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington. That's unimaginable now especially during this recent period where Black women have been, you know, front and center from Stacey Abrams to Kamala to yeah. Andrew Davis still, Tamika Mallory, Alicia Garza, right? You know, so, yeah. so that's what I would say. But I think it's, it's, it's complicated because I remember talking to a bunch of sisters at the Million Man March. I was 22. And, you know, I, I was talking- You had some toxic shit to say, didn't you? Yeah, You were ready for it. I, wasn't, <laughs> I was talking to them and, and I was, you know, they- but we were going, we were going back and forth. And at the time, I was in grad school and I was studying this stuff. But there were black women who 
because I read something, a critique by Black feminists of the march, because the march was just um, men. But there were some women who were at the march. And I said, well, what do you, you know, what do you think about this? This, this, you know, uh, there's a critique, Angela Davis, other people, bell hooks are saying, this is, you know, sexist, you know, um, um, uh, Farrakhan has a real problematic relationship to just a lot of different things. Like, right. you know, what's going on here? And they really push back against the, the kind of intellectual progressive sort of perspective in the sense of saying, hey, these brothers need to get their act together. And I'm all for this, right? And I don't think just because I'm all for this that um, somehow I'm not, I don't have any consciousness. You know what I mean? So yeah. it became this, it became, it, it, it became something very complicated where it's not that Black women somehow wanted to be oppressed by Black men within the Nation of Islam or people at the Million Man March, but they felt that they did want to see these Black men who were acting as upstanding leaders. They didn't want to be um, trampled on or anything, but they felt these Black men needed to handle their business, right? So it's a very complicated thing. And as somebody who grew up in the Black church, I feel the same way. When, you, when you're in these grassroots, regular, ordinary, the Black quotidian, it's not quite as cut and dry as when you're in an academic setting and you're saying, hey, here's, you know, right. here's this, this very specific argument. You can have a black woman who's like, no, I'm strong and I'm, I'm brilliant, but I, I do want somebody who is going to be there for me in the context of the family, whatever right. you academics call that. Do you see what I'm saying? And right. it doesn't mean um, you can invalidate my experience because this is how I want a, a relationship, right? right? So it's a really interesting, it's an interesting, um, and that's why I said it's really, it's complicated, right? Because we can hold these ideas, but then how do we actually live our lives? Right, right. right. So it's, it's, it's it, it, And the Sword and the Shield, it's interesting in the way you, 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 you position this with Dr. King because you don't really pull any punches about who Dr. King was, um, but it doesn't seem to be something that weighs the book down or weighs the characterization of Martin Luther King down in any way. Um, it's done very deftly and it's mm-hmm. done with a, a, a great degree of nuance. Uh, and we don't seem to be able to do that in general society as far as to have conversations about how women were erased in some of these movements. And at the same time, not diminish the greatness of the uh, of the men or the figures that came from these movements. It, it seems like we, we really struggle with how we're supposed to do that. And Martin Luther King Jr. is a, is, you know, it's a flashpoint of that struggle. He's, he's exemplary of it. Uh, it seems difficult to talk about him in any voice other than saintly praise. Yeah. And because of that, there's so many lessons from his life that us as black men can take outside of that, that it seems like we don't, we don't get a chance to actually uh, uh, learn. What do you think about that? No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, King has a relationship with food, with sex, with pleasure that many black men, I think, struggle with, struggle with, right? With drinking, you know, like King, King likes to have a good time. He likes to have a good yeah. time, right? And he's, he's struggling with that his whole life, right? And what I mean by food is that King loves some black food, soul food. He loves yeah. food, right? 
and he struggles with his weight as he gets more stressed. King um, has uh, sex and likes sex and obviously has that contradiction of liking sex outside of his marriage. That's a big contradiction as a preacher. No, I'm right? sorry. I'm so, sorry, Benito. Van's face. <laughs> I'm like, sorry. What is so funny to you? <laughs> because I said he likes, because I said he likes sex. I don't know what has him so tickled. Okay, okay. I, I mean, that's what he... <laughs> Like Dr. King's not supposed to like that. It's like Dr. King. <laughs> I, I have a feeling it's not going to be that funny, Dr. Joseph. I try, I tried, and I, then I looked at Rachel, and Rachel caught me. Rachel caught me trying not to laugh. Okay, he, he just okay. Oh, what was he the trigger that I said that? It he, was just King has sex and likes sex. Yeah. Okay, okay, yeah, because he does. You know, that's a that's yeah. a hard thing for us to come to terms with, right? He does. He 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 likes. He likes sex, right? And, and and I think sometimes people will say things like, oh, was Dr. King a sex addict and all these different things? I wouldn't even go that far. I mean, I think he is a celebrity the way in which a lot of folks are celebrities in that time, including President of the United States, President Kennedy, right? Yeah, of course. And he's on the road a lot. He's away from his family a lot, right? And so I think within that context, that becomes something he struggles with. Dr. King is a cigarette smoker who smoked cigarettes for the for his entire life. Most people never see a picture of King with a cigarette. He was deathly afraid of being photographed smoking or anything. Um, Dr. King likes alcohol, right? I don't feel Dr. King was an alcoholic, but at times, especially near the end, they said he started to drink quite a bit. I mean, he was stressed. Who amongst us wouldn't drink if we're constantly facing death penalty, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and, and assassination threats, right? So I think finding that out about King, and I talk about the plagiarism charges, makes mm-hmm. him more human. And King was hugely brilliant. I think he plagiarizes parts of the dissertation, and that's been proven. But if you read Letter from Birmingham Jail, which is put together from scraps that he writes from jail, King is absolutely brilliant. The only reason why I feel he plagiarized is because he's in a hurry to get the dissertation done. Mm-hmm. He's about to get married. He's about to start a new job and he becomes really sloppy and just takes these shortcuts. I think all these things make him much more human. And as a black man, he struggles with ideas of masculinity. And you can see it in the sword and the shield when at times he's extremely angry with what Malcolm X is saying. He's so angry that by May of 20, of 1963, after Malcolm is calling him anything but a child of God after Birmingham, saying that he's a coward, he's this, he's at a huge rally, 35,000 people in Los Angeles, and he's talking to Malcolm without ever saying it. Sammy Davis Jr. is there, everybody's there. And what he says is that nonviolence is a tool of people who are powerful, who are courageous, who are muscular. And then he says, it's the cowards who don't, who won't, uh, embrace nonviolence. He's talking about mm. Malcolm X. He's talking mm. about Malcolm X. He's saying, you're the coward. I'm not the coward. I mean, and King practically wants to say, you know, MF to this guy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so King is like us. Like, he's not, he's just, he's just more disciplined publicly, right? But King, I mean, there's parts of King that wants to get in a fist fight with Malcolm. Hey, Rub me my face, Malcolm. Yeah. 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 Like, <laughs> who, who are you? Who are you to challenge me with everything that I'm going through? So, he really, he really teaches us a whole lot about being 
you know, trying to be a complicated black man who 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 is not uh, oppressing black women, who's not mistreating your children. King never hits his children. You know, that stops the cycle because he was hit by Daddy mm-hmm. King. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, and as somebody I grew up in a black household where I was hit. I'm stopping yeah. the cycle with my daughter right now. <laughs> you know, I was hit. Right. So. Um, I think King is really important for us about in terms of black masculinity and Malcolm too, uh, but in a different way, you know, Malcolm too, in a different way. I am curious if a conversation was ever had publicly where there was some acknowledgement from the men and black men in the civil rights movement of how they weren't treating the women in the same way. And I, and I say this because it's obvious at this point that we know now Mm -hmm. that, the civil rights movement could not have happened without women. They were organizers. They were educators. They were strategists. They were writers. They were heavily involved. I mean, Dorothy Hype, shout out to Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. <laughs> I mean, she was on stage at the March, Van Stop. She, she was on stage at the March on Washington. And this, the Civil Rights Act in 1964, which I think sometimes people forget about, did not include sex. It didn't originally include gender. That didn't come till later, which also shows that women were placed on the back burner. And I'm so I'm just curious if there was I read something where James Farmer has talked about later in life about how about Dorothy Hyatt and spoke towards that and how she often wasn't interviewed by the press because of sexism. But were there were there any men that were speaking up and saying no, we got to, you know, like we got to include the women. We got to give them leadership roles in these organizations. We got to make them the face of some of this. Was there any of that? Well, I think that there's going to be some in activist organizations, certainly like SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And there were Black women like Gloria Richardson and the Fran Beals and the Gwen Pattons, who are leaders in SNCC, Ruby Doris Smith Robinson. So, yes, I think there were. I think they weren't happening enough at the national level because by by the time you get to the national level, groups like the Congressional Black Caucus and a guy like Jesse Jackson, they thought, for instance, when Shirley Chisholm ran, that it wasn't going to be good if it wasn't a Black man to run. So in the context of the 1970s, says, look, we still don't have a woman president. We still have never had a woman president in the United States. So it was perceived as... Um, Weakness, and part of that has to do with the fact that the, the the freedom dreams of the black freedom struggle have always contained a tension where they run along multiple tracks. One track interprets freedom as a kind of black male patriarchy that mirrors white male patriarchy, with black men in an unfettered way having the prerogatives of white male patriarchy. So we become the new capitalist, the head of the household. In a way, the Nation of Islam, for all of its radicalism, and there are aspects of it that are radical and militant, is very is quite conservative in, in wanting that kind of small, petty bourgeois, black male, patriarchal capitalism. There's no room for people who are queer. There's no room for women's leadership other than the way in which the box that Black men might be putting them in. That's one version. Another version is a very expansive version of of Black women as co-architects. And you can see that with Ida B. Wells, Anna Julia Cooper, uh, Frances Harper, Mariah Stewart, uh, Nanny Helen Burroughs, certainly Dorothy Hyde. 
Mary McLeod Bethune, um, just just so many different others, right? And so that that's a huge tension, and that tension continues to this day, right? It's just that in recently, because of people like Michelle Obama and Black Lives Matter, for the first time in American history, we've seen Black women who are fully acknowledged as leaders and architects of the freedom struggle, in addition to being individual, you know, talented um, artists and creators and activists, right? So you, you've seen more light on Black women right at this moment in American history than ever before. And data-wise, we have more Black women than men because of structural racism, graduating from high school, graduating from college, getting master's degrees, getting PhDs, going to medical school, and really being successful. You, you know what I mean? Like there's more Black women at UT than Black men at UT. Right. We might look at it and think differently because you think about the football team at UT or or the basketball team at UT. But black women are finding much more success in higher education, much more success in corporate America. Guess what, Rachel? The first two black people to ever become presidents of Ivy League universities, Brown University, and now it's going to be Harvard, um, is is Ruth Simmons at Brown. Ruth Simmons, who is now retiring at PVMU and coming to Rice. And, and now Claudine Gay, Haitian sister, shout out to Claudine Gay. And, and that shows you the difference, right? It's unimaginable that if we think about the second reconstruction or the 1980s or 1990s, if they were gonna, the first black president of Ivy League would have been a black woman. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Now, Harvard's first black president is not, 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 not Barack Obama, it's Claudine Gay, mm-hmm. right? And so it's showing you something about the valence and, and the, the leadership, the stature of black women in 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 American culture that that didn't exist before. You know what I mean? When you just mm-hmm. see it. So it's really it's really there. And I think even still though within our community there's tensions about what does that mean and how do we both in terms of if you're an ambitious black woman, ambitious black man be on the same team. And I'm not talking about romantically, I'm just saying on the same team because there's really competition, right? You know what I mean? Like because we all know we live in a capitalist society. There aren't slots for everybody. Yeah. You ain't all going to be president of Harvard or everybody's not going to have a nationally broadcast podcast. You, you know what I mean? Right. Like, yeah. So, mm-hmm. so yeah. now we, we really are in a kind of tension, um, but we can also be in solidarity with each other, which is the, which is the better route, I would argue. Uh, give them a book. Give them a book. We're going to start doing this. Peniel Joseph's Book of the Month. You must read this book, okay? Wherever yeah. the book is, it could be one of your books, Peniel. It could be a different book. We'll give them a book. Give them a book to read. Do it now. You know, I I, I love um, uh, a couple of books. Dante Stewart's Shouting in the Fire, an American epistle, and it's it's on religion. Dante is somebody to have him on the show. He's a former Clemson University athlete turned writer, uh, Black Pentecostal who went through the white evangelical church and is now out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> as, I got to read that. Yeah. R- radical uh, a Black figure who talks about anxiety, depression, talks about trauma and grief. Really brilliant brother. We just had him at University of Texas down here and he just lit it up. Dante Stewart, Shouting in the Fire, is, is one that's really brilliant. Um, just one. They did. That's one. Don't, okay. Don't don't okay. don't weigh him down, Peniel. 
Hold on, shout in the fire. Shout in the fire. Shout in the fire. Don't shout. Shout. No way I'm down. Peniel will bring you back on. We'll bring you shout. on, and we'll do Peniel Joseph's book of the month. Shout, shout in the fire. In the fire. That, shout that, in the fire. That book should be a bestseller. That is mm-hmm. a unbelievable book. Yeah. Unbelievable. What, what did you Great. say? What did you say, Doctor King? Light. What did you say? Never mind. <laughs> okay, okay, <laughs> guys. That is uh. Uh, that's Benil Joseph. Look, the ratio of black women in these movements will not continue. It's important to know no, no. how integral uh, we've been uh, together as allies culturally, um, black right. men and black women. Okay, it's very important. It's very important. Uh, Benil Joseph from the University of Texas LBJ School of Hard Knocks. We appreciate you coming back on Higher Learning, bro. Um, book of the month. Every every single every single month, we're going to give them Peniel Joseph's book of the month. We need to do this. And then at the end, was well, the second month. So at the end uh, of the end of the year, we'll 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 round them all up. Okay. Okay. All right. Thank you, brother. Thank you for joining us, man. Thank, Thank you. Right. you Thank always. You. This episode is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle. As your business grows, you might start seeing some lag. There's too much work for your team. Too many different processes, and it takes forever to close the books. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, and one. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. It's a cloud financial system that can help streamline accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, that's how many years NetSuite has been helping businesses do more with less. And one, because your one-of-a-kind business deserves a customized solution for your KPIs. It's like when you come here for this podcast or when you check out your favorite website to gather all the info you need to make better decisions for your fantasy leagues. Well, NetSuite does that for your business and then some. It's one efficient system, one source of truth with everything you need to grow. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash ringer. That is netsuite.com slash ringer. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just... Once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. Okay, uh, Peniel Joseph, genius. I know. <clears throat> genius. So good. Those hey, students are so lucky to have him. <laughs> are you Maybe. serious? Yeah. Maybe they are. Maybe. And yeah, maybe, maybe they are. Maybe they are. Maybe, maybe, maybe I should be teaching them. Who knows? I could teach them all kinds of things. I could teach a Marvel class at the LBJ school. I could teach a class. Well, that's a public policy school. So no, you wouldn't be. I could do nothing. Peter Joseph is the man. <laughs> you could <laughs> teach a Marvel class though. <laughs> an intellectual hero. Actually, no. Do you know how many people out there that know so much more about Marvel than me? Really? Oh my God. <laughs> Whatever. All right. Speaking of of uh, powerful messages, I would like to hear a powerful message from the White House about what's going on in our skies. Okay, I'm not sure what's I'm, happening. 
I'm good. You don't care. No, I care. I'm t- I find it terrifying. And oh. I would just rather be ignorant. I'm not in a rush. Please don't. No, I care a lot. Okay. The U.S. has shot down four objects in eight days. This is since the Chinese spy balloon situation. There have been four of the objects that have been shot down. It's just unprecedented, unprecedented peacetime, people say. Lake Huron shot down an unidentified flying object, an unidentified, unidentified object. Okay. Canada, unidentified object. Um, Joe Biden ordered these things to be shot down. What are you shooting? What are you spraying around? You just copper cut one? Copper, copper keeps passing gas. Oh, copper farted. Do you do, do you do that thing to where, do you get gassy? Is that a thing with you? All the time. You do? So I'm, I'm I mean, a gassy person. I'm very open about this. Okay. So you're, so you're, you're gassy and then you spray that. So how do you know when it's you or when it's copper? Okay. I always can tell when it's me. I can feel oh. it leaving my body. Sometimes it happens to me and I don't know. Sometimes That's not me. I'm not, lo- I'm not loose like that. Yeah. Copper, on the I other am. hand, copper, on the other hand, it's the medicine that he's taking and it is just foul. Just gets it, right? It's yeah. Um, okay, so part of the reason for these, for these shoot downs is a heightened alert that we're under following the spot movement that got shot down. Um, this is according to General Glenn Van Hurt, who's the head of NORAD um, and the U.S. Northern Command. He said this in a briefing with reporters. Since then, there have been fire jets uh, that have been all over the place and they've shot down stuff over Canada, Alaska. Pentagon officials have said that they pose no security threats, but so little was known about them that the Pentagon officials were ruling nothing out, including UFOs. Okay, this is a frustrating situation for me for many reasons. Okay. I don't feel that we're getting the transparency that we should be getting from the government on this. What are you expecting them to tell you? I'm expecting, look, I understand that the situation is still pretty fluid. Uh, But they've shot the stuff down and they know what was shot down. Right. I don't think they know. They know not to call them balloons. They're calling them objects specifically, and they're not ruling out the fact that it could be something extraterrestrial. I honestly, Van, that's enough for me. They don't even know how they're flying. That has also been revealed. They cannot figure out how the things are flying. I'm I'm out. So one of the objects shot down was cylindrical and silverish gray with no identifiable propulsion system. Another was shot down, small, cylindrical, 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 cylindrical object. The third was an octagonal structure with strings. I'm good. I feel like they know more here. I, I feel like they know more here. I don't. This is where I get into my tinfoil hatchet. I feel like they know more here. I feel like there's something to be known. Look, this could be the beginning of sort of the end. Es- well, no, I would say some escalating tensions between the United States and China or other people. Or Look, Russia. Yeah. Or Russia. I read about different spy planes that we've had. And the United States is 
uh, rush to invent technology and spy planes that are capable of flying so high that it's very difficult to shoot them down. Now, even though we've had these planes, different types of spy bombers and all of this stuff fly super high, almost the fucking space guys are wearing like oxygen masks and stuff to fly the planes. Some of them have still been shot at and shot down. So nations spying on each other and using surveillance methods, be them drones, planes, whatever they are, that is a tale as old as time. That's, there's nothing new about that. This right here is peculiar in the frequency and the, the short time in which this has happened. And also the relative caginess from government officials on this. And it's even more scary if the shit, they have it and they don't know what it is. Because guess what? They're supposed to know what it is. Well, if it's something that they've never seen before, they might not know. I think I think you're wanting to hear something from them that they really can't give you. And I don't think because this is something unprecedented, they're even saying that, they want to be matter of fact when they tell you and not cause public outrage, like just a full out scare from the public. I'm already scared. And I think them not knowing, because that's what I really think it is, and them not knowing, like it not being matter of fact, is even more terrifying to me. That, that's you, what I think it is. If you don't know what it is, how do you even know that you should shoot it down? If you don't well, so know you what should it, just Oh, because it was in, um, uh, in the pathway of commercial planes. Okay, like, cool. It was in the pathway. So all of them were in the pathway of commercial planes because one of them was in fucking Alaska. So, so the what no, I'm saying Canada is Canada actually asked for them to shoot that one down. I believe. Okay, so what I'm saying is that they at least know that they pose some sort of threat. The commercial planes point is a fair point, but and I've read a, a fair degree about this. There seems to be an awakening that's happened since the spy balloon situation, and perhaps. There are more surveillance objects over U.S. airspace and Canadian airspace than they thought that there were. And for some reason, they don't either don't recognize these objects or they don't want to tell us that the Chinese are looking as hard as what they are or some other nation is looking as hard as what they are. But as fast as we've learned about all of these different incidents, you think that there would be uh, a very substantive briefing to the American people about what's going on here. That, look, it could be some yeah, alien shit. Today they gave us nothing. They had a briefing today, nothing. Donnie, what do you think? I'm a believer. I think that uh, it, I think it's aliens. <laughs> I'm like okay. uh, halfway Are into... You sound excited, Donnie. Do you, is that what no, you no, want yeah. them I just, to I be? Think you're a fucking freak. It just sounds, it sounds crazy. But um, I don't know. It's just it's like I'm in an alien mindset when it comes to I think uh, like right now I'm halfway through the first season of X Files, so I'm like, this is the timeliness of this. Speaking Jesus of, Christ, like, it, it feels Ashley, like Ashley. Yes. Real. <laughs> what do you think? I mean, Donnie's excited over there. <laughs> I think it's terrifying if it is aliens. The government lies about lots of stuff, so why wouldn't it be aliens? You know what I mean? Why would or it's something even worse? It's like a country doing some weird stuff. So I don't know. I mean, what what would you rather? 
I would. Is rather... that your serious question, Van? For the, for the for the, would you rather it be a some spy intelligence or yeah, extra ter- I mean, or extraterrestrial that... activity? Well, it, so this is the this is the thing that I believe about aliens fundamentally, right? I believe that if the aliens are coming here. There's just no good reason for them to come here. Yes, it's not okay. curiosity. Hawking, Hawking said that if the, Hawking said that the aliens would come within 150 years or something like that, and he said if they did come, then the odds are that they were nomadic killer aliens that had exhausted all the resources on their planet, and they were looking for a new planet to take all the resources from because it's a very long way to travel. Okay. Now, that is very terrifying. Stephen Hawking, uh, recipes Hawk. Like, it is very terrifying. I tend to believe there are other people who think it's different, right? Other people who think yes. it's maybe not saying enough, people who think it's not who they might come here and be nice and, you know what I'm saying, we might sh- start sharing candy and like going, you know, whatever. But that's very scary, honestly, because we'd be dealing with the technology and the civilization that we can't really match wits with if they're coming from that far away. If it's spy stuff, it's not that big of a deal to me. We spy on them, them spy, they spy on us. This is the deal. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we might not send... This is the deal. We might not send balloons over them, but we definitely, during the Cold War and at other times, have had planes flying around taking pictures of people. It's kind of a it's kind of a deal. You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. um, the, the, hold on. The White House did say this today, though. There's, again, no, no indication of aliens or extraterrestrial, a, extraterrestrial activity with these recent takedowns. This takedowns just came up. Uh, told, it, it says, and it says uh, John Kirby, who's the spokesperson for the National Security Council, said that uh, all manners of innocuous craft can fly at the same altitude. That includes aircraft used by companies or countries for purposes that are not nefarious at all. Um, and they said that all of these were determined not to pose a direct threat to people on the ground. They were also found to be uncrewed and have limited abilities from a lack of mm-hmm. communication signals to a lack of obvious propulsion capabilities. So these seem to be things that were floating around Doing different stuff. So it doesn't seem to be aliens. Donnie, you fucking freak. Okay. <laughs> it's probably the fact that we are now on the lookout for these things since <laughs> the spy balloon. And because we're on the lookout for them, we are finding them. Okay. One more time. We're not going to do the DDG versus Ruby Rose versus Halle Bailey thing because it's just too much. But I do want to talk about this interest elder. Are they situation. your friends? I don't know any of them, but they're just kids, man. They're like some babies. Ruby Rose. I don't even know. I, actually, I know who Ruby Rose is because, you know. <laughs> but, like, it, it, I don't even know who DDG is. I don't know who that is. You don't know who DDG is? You've never nah. seen him with Hallie? I know that he's with Hallie, but I don't know what, like, DDG does. DDG a rapper? He is a, he's big on social. He is a rapper. He's uh-huh. very big on social media, but more on YouTube. Like his whole family does stuff. And he's got this really funny nephew called Woo Wop. And that, okay. did, you ever, did you ever see, he had this viral moment, the little nephew. He's a really funny kid. 
And his dad or somebody dressed him up as like an emo kid. And when they took off his his like veil or whatever, he he had like spikes on his necklace and and like all these it's just he was emo. And he started singing the song, I wanna kill my mom, I wanna kill my dad. And and like he stood in front of a room of like black people and they were like, What the fuck? No. And he was like, yes, I'm going to send it to you. Anyways, hilarious. he's hilarious. <laughs> hilarious. Right. Um, so that's how I got to know who DDG is because okay. of uh, um, WAP. All right. So I, look, they, they're, they're all going back and forth. It seems like Ruby Rose and DDG or whatever. And how is it? Miller, whatever. Um, it's really kid stuff. I really don't know what's going on. <laughs> no, I don't want to get into it. <laughs> Idris Elba, though, he says that he stopped describing himself as a Black actor because it puts himself in a box, puts him in a box. He mm-hmm. opened up about race and nationality in a new cover of Esquire magazine. He says, didn't become an actor because I didn't see Black people doing it, and I want to change that. What? I did it because I thought that's a great profession and I could do a good job at it. As you get up the ladder, you get asked what it's like to be the first Black to do this or that. Well, it's same. It's the same as it would be if I were white. It's the first time for me. I don't want to be the first black. I'm the first interest. Stop describing myself as a black actor when I realize put me in a box. You've got to grow. You've got to. Our skin is no more than that. It's just skin. Rant over. Okay. Since then, Idris Elba has come out and said that he does. He identifies himself as nothing more than a strong black man. He's a man, strong black man. He understands what it's like to be a black man. However, as an actor, which is his profession, as John Boyega came out, shout out to John Boyega. John Boyega came out and challenged Idris Elba on this. And Idris Elba said, you know, look, I'm a black man. Black man, but as an actor, doesn't think the black thing, doesn't think the black thing is necessary. Rich? I mean, what else are you as an actor? What do you mean, what else is he? He's an actor. He's fucking Luther. Okay, but that's what I'm saying. But every time you step into one of these roles, you're a black man in these roles. Do you know what I'm saying? So it doesn't make sense for him to say, don't put me in a box. When we look at you on the screen, we see you as a black man. When you play Luther, you're a black man. I don't understand. I I understand what he's saying, but I also don't understand what he's saying. Do you see what I'm saying? You you might want people to see you just as an actor, but they will always see you by your color first. And you and if you do identify yourself as a black man, then you know walking through this earth as a black man, that is the first thing that people see about you. Maybe he's saying he doesn't want it to be so much of a conversation because everybody has been speculating whether or not he's going to be the next James Bond. And if so, he would be a the black James Bond. And so maybe he's saying, I'm tired of that conversation surrounding it. But like, if you're the first black James Bond, you should also understand what representation means and how important that could be for people who grew up watching James Bond, who are fans of it, to now see a black man step in that role and be as, I don't, I've never seen a James Bond movie, but to step in that role and be cool, calm and collected as James Bond comes off being, see a black man do that, that's a, that might be powerful to some black people for representation's sake. So Blacks. I don't really understand. I don't understand where Idris was going with this. I really don't. I really don't. Or why he so, felt the need to do this. So there's a there's a 
there's a fork in the road here. There's like a split. For you? No, I just think period. Okay. It's important to talk about. Okay. Um, so I don't look at black as an individual characteristic. And I think that might be what separates the two method of methods of thought. Black to me is not an individual, an individual characteristic. You know, like I have like a, I have like scaly feet from basketball. You know, my feet are all, my heels are all messed up. My toes are messed up from all the time I put it on the court. Hoping, getting buckets. Okay, that's an individual characteristic. Something that other people might have, but that's something that I've done to myself. Black, to me, my black is not just who I am. It's the culmination of who millions of people have been. And I know that that sounds like bullshit. I know that that sounds like an impossible burden. And I know that that sounds like something that's uh, unfair. But to me, it's insanely liberating. And not just liberating, it's empowering to know that my life represents something. That my life is a part of something. Um, that li- my life means something um, in terms of a culture that is a lot bigger than me. So if I were to ever become the first Black whatever, that wouldn't be something that would be for me. That would be something that would be for us. That would be something that would be meaningful to people who have survived and persevered under these really crazy odds. And so there's something that's missed when you take this huge cultural situation and you shrink it down. Now, I understand for his life, that's fine. He, he, he wants to be, he doesn't want that whole thing. He doesn't think that that's a part of it. Like he, when he acts or goes somewhere, he wants to be free from that. To me, it's not a burden or an albatross. It actually is part of what gives me my wings is the fact that so many other people, women and men, have really had to put on for me to be in this situation. And you know what the funny thing about it is? The funny thing about it is we understand that, or they want us to understand that with everything except for our Blackness, right? Everything except for our Blackness they want us to get, right? So if we're watching the Olympics, they want you to care about the medal count of America. They want you to care when somebody is waving an American flag. They want you to go somewhere and be an American. You know what I mean? They want you to go somewhere and be a representative of a country or a culture. They want you to feel that that's important. And if you're not a patriot, then they tell you that's bad. They say, hey, not caring about all of the people that came before and the total cultural weight of where it is that you are from. So they want they want that to mean something to you because that's the thing that makes you go fight somebody and kill someone. That's the thing that makes you go spy on someone. That's the thing that makes you sacrifice. Right. That's the thing that makes you 
do a little bit less for yourself so that you can do it for everybody else. The fact that you care about being in America. But when it's about being black, they won't, they don't want you to care about that. They didn't want you to take all of the incredible sacrifices that people have made in the diaspora worldwide because Idris Elba is not a black American. And so there are things that here, it's just keep it all the way gangster. There are things that we would get or feel the need to identify with here that he might not because he's not a black American. But still, in terms of the diaspora, the worldwide black struggle, there should certainly be things that Idris Elba understands about the struggle of being black. But when it comes to that, they want you to forget it and be like, hey, I'm not this thing. I am black. I, I, I am British. I am Idris. My blackness has nothing to do. My blackness doesn't give me the strength or the poise that I might need to deliver this role. My blackness doesn't give me the focus. You know what I mean? There's no part of me. I would say that as an artist, it would be important to understand how your cultural background, your heritage, the strength and the clarity of that cultural understanding informs your artistry. That's what I hear when I hear Bob Marley. That's what I hear when I hear Stevie Wonder, when I hear Muddy Waters. That's what I hear when I hear Bono. You know what I'm saying? That's what I hear when I hear the Cranberries. That's what I hear when I hear the Beatles. When I hear all of these different people, when I see all of these different people acting and doing their things and creating music and art, I hear the power of their culture, who they are and what they are informing their art and making it better. Yeah. And I'm not offended by what Idris Elba says. Uh, so I'm working very hard to be less offended. But I'm just looking at it like, why is being Black the first Black, the Black this, the Black that, not an intense sense of pride? Why does it have to be something that, what's wrong with that? Just because you're the first black don't mean you can't be the other. uh, uh, Barack Obama is the first black president. He's a good president. You know what I mean? It's it's like just because that doesn't mean that that's all you have to be. Why is it fitting? Like what? And and look, if he doesn't feel that way, he doesn't feel that way. But I don't want there to be this misunderstanding that we don't bring that shit with us. And we need to remember and be a part of, you know what I'm saying? So it's just, I don't know. I just don't like the public announcement behind it. It's like, why? I don't know what question was posed to him, but I don't like, I don't felt, I don't understand why you felt like you needed to give that response. So I'm neither, I'm not offended, but I do think that what he's saying is problematic because this is where you take that type of quote, where you see the other side take this quote and say, see, this is how Idris thinks. Why don't the rest of y'all think like that? Why can't we all just put our color to the side? Our colors to the side, our race well, to the side. I mean, look, no. I'll be real with you. If if I wanted to be a cynic and an asshole about it, the thought would be maybe he wants people to know that he feels that way and he thinks that that would help him get the James Bond role. You know what I mean? But I don't think that's, I've never seen Idris Elba be anything other than a really stand-up amazing guy who represents various parts of where he's from. His African roots, we've seen him really uh, embrace. Obviously, he's a proud Englishman. And when he's come over here, he's been one of us. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's like, I just don't think that it's necessary for you 
to stand there all dripped in chocolate and just tell people you're not black. <laughs> it's like, or tell it's just, come on, man. All right. Um, it's just, I just don't know what this I don't either. I don't either. It's like, all right, cool. Cool. Hey. No, it's not cool. It's just, look, just I, I don't look, want. Whatever niggas be on is what they be on, man. But come on, God damn it, man. You don't want to be, you don't want to be black. This is the fucking shit. You don't want to be black. Think about it. You got to want to be, I'm not even talking about as a man, because he said he's a proud black man. But I'm talking about as a black actor. Yeah, Think about the, what that represents. You don't want to be with Denzel and Angela Bassett. Huh? You don't want to be with I mean, motherfucking like, Chiwetel. You don't want to be. You don't want to. You don't want to be so with many black You don't want to be with with Michael B. Wait. Jordan. You don't want to be with Sidney Poitier. You don't want to be with Cicely Tyson. You don't want to be with motherfucking Bill Duke. You don't want to be with a Lawrence Fishburne. Huh? But you've done you so many black things. You've done Eddie Murphy. You don't want to be with them. You you've done, done the Wire. You've done. You've done. Um, Tyler Perry movie, a movie like it's so black. That is little girl. It's so black. You know what's crazy? It's See, it was, makes you feel like, was, oh, you reached a certain level. Now you don't want to. No, it's just crazy though because they would have never put Justin Timberlake in Daddy's Little Girls, and Justin Timberlake would have never been Stringer Bell. You got those because you black. Okay, let's move. I love it yourself. I hope he, I hope he's born. You know, just come on, guys. Let's, you know, man. You know, come on. Woo-hoo. You know what I mean? Come on, guys. Don't do us like that. Bubby. Man, serious question of the week. Is Idris Elba black? Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> on, don't do it. Just don't do it. Just like, you know, that's like not to Esquire. You know, if you're in the room. Don't do it at all. No, <laughs> wait, no, wait, no. Wait, wait, wait. wait, wait. That's like, if you're in the room and it's you and Spielberg and the rest of them, and you feel like you got to get your shit off that way, nigga, I'm not even going to fuck it. It's not for me, but I'm not even going to trip. It's not to Esquire, though. Because the writers of Esquire are like, ooh, interesting. And of course, they're going to they're gonna leak the nigga shit. Anyway, Idris will be Bond. I love Idris Elba. Just, we all got to continue to learn and continue to grow. Like that. All right, take the caps off and do not stop learning. I'm Van Lathan Jr. I am Rachel Lynn Lindsay. Hi guys. Vanessa Joseph. <laughs>